thank you. Uh, my justification for giving this particular lecture under the religious epistemology heading um, is that, well, at any rate, Christian religion uh, believes strongly in free will, and many people think that uh, in order to have free will, uh, our actions must not be determined, and in particular, uh, it must be the case that physical determinism is false. And uh, I am going to argue uh, that physical determinism is highly implausible, and to do that I am presenting an epistemological thesis. Um, it's possible that some of you may have read what I have to say about this matter, since uh, it uh, does correspond rather closely to a chapter in the book to which John referred. Um, and I'm sorry about that, but at any rate it will give you an opportunity to uh, raise objections to what I've said in the uh, subsequent discussion. Okay, uh, I hope everyone has a handout. I begin with some definitions which are on the handout. I define a physical event as an event to which no one person has privileged access. That is a public event. And a mental event as to one to which its subject, the person whose it is, necessarily has privileged access. By a person having privileged access to some event, I mean that necessarily he is in a better position than anyone else to know that it is occurring. Whatever ways others have of finding out whether or not it is occurring, the subject can also use, but he has an additional way by experiencing it. I define a pure mental event as one which does not entail the occurrence of a physical event. Perceptions, such as my seeing a tree, are mental events, since I can know better than anyone else whether or not I'm seeing a tree, but they are not pure mental events, since seeing a tree entails that there is a tree there present, and that is a physical event. But sensations, such as pains and beliefs, such as the belief, such as the belief that I am seeing a tree, are pure mental events, since it is not entailed by the occurrence of sensations or beliefs that anything public is happening. Conscious events are a subclass of pure mental events. They include both those pure mental events which occur only while the subject is conscious of them, and also pure mental events of which the subject is conscious, but which may occur while the subject is not conscious of them. The first group includes not merely sensations, such as pains, but also occurrent thoughts. If I am not in any way aware that the thought, today is Tuesday, is now crossing my mind, it isn't crossing my mind. It also includes, I suggest, as I shall use the term, intentions, that is the intentions in what I'm doing, not the intentions for the future. Intentions, what I am trying to achieve by my bodily movements. If my body performs some movement of a kind which I normally make intentionally, but which on this occasion was simply an unintended reflex, then, as I am using the term, there was no intention in what I am doing. Among the pure mental events of which I can become conscious, but which may continue to occur while I am not conscious of them, are beliefs and desires. That's all terminology. Physical determinism, as I shall understand it, is the doctrine that every event has a physical event as its necessary and sufficient cause, and no non-physical event as a cause. It therefore entails epiphenomenalism, the doctrine that physical events, in effect brain events, cause conscious events, but conscious events, including intentions, never cause physical events. Hence, if epiphenomenalism is implausible, so too is physical determinism. It would follow from epiphenomenalism that such common sense views as that my intention to come to the humanities building caused the brain events which caused my leg movements which brought me here are false. In this paper, I argue the epistemological thesis that no one could ever be justified in believing physical determinism and that claims that recent neuroscientific work provide that justification are not merely false but couldn't possibly be true, and that is because of what constitutes a justified belief in a scientific theory. For a justified belief in physical determinism requires a justified belief in a particular deterministic scientific theory. And to have a justified belief in a scientific theory, 
requires a justified belief that it makes successful predictions. And that means both a justified belief that it predicts certain events and a justified belief that those events occurred. And, I am going to argue, those justified beliefs, the ones I've just mentioned, couldn't possibly be had if physical determinism is true. And hence, I shall argue, physical determinism is self-defeating. It could only be justified if, in fact, it is false. So, I start with epistemology. How can anyone have a justified belief that some scientific theory predicts certain events? Scientists in the relevant field will have calculated that it makes these predictions. And if a scientist can hold all the calculations in her mind at one time, it will be for her a deliverance of reason, evident a priori, that the theory does make these predictions. Alas, for any scientific theory of any complexity, most experts at the centre of the field will be unable to hold in their minds at one time all the relevant calculations. Even as the scientist reads through the text of her calculations, she depends on her memory towards the end of the calculations for her belief that the initial calculations were correct. Later in life, all that she may remember is that it did seem to her earlier that the theory made those predictions. She may have a diary in which she has recorded this, which will be, as it were, her testimony about this to herself and others. Non-scientists and scientists less central in the field will depend on the testimony of those whom they regard as experts, that they have made those calculations. So what makes someone's belief that the theory predicts certain events justified is, if it can be had, experience, of one currently seeing that the calculations are correct, memory, of having made the calculations in the past, and testimony from oneself or others that they have made certain calculations. Or rather, since all of these sources may mislead, it is apparent memory, apparent experience, memory and testimony which provide our justified belief that the theory makes true predictions. Justified in the absence of counter-evidence that is, in the absence of defeaters. So that's how anyone can have a justified belief that uh, a theory makes certain predictions. And how can anyone have a justified belief that the events predicted in fact occurred? They will normally depend on the evidence of the same three sources. Certain observers will apparently, in a wide sense, experience these events. That is, if they are physical events, they will perceive them, or if they are conscious events, they will experience them in a narrow sense. Later, the observers may apparently remember having experienced the events, and others will depend on the apparent testimony of observers about these, or the observers may depend on their own apparent written testimony. Alternatively, a believer may have a justified belief that the events predicted occurred, because it's a consequence, deductive or probabilistic, of some other justifiably believed theory that they did. But in that case, a justified belief in the other theory would itself depend on the evidence of the same three sources. It is a fundamental epistemic principle that what we seem to, that is what we apparently experience, is probably so, barring counter-evidence. And this includes what we seem to observe in the public world, what we seem to experience as conscious events, and the logical consequences that we seem to see. We should believe all of these in the absence of counter-evidence. And this I call the principle of credulity. If this were not a fundamental epistemic principle, total scepticism would follow. It is a second epistemic principle, which in fact follows from the former, though I shall find it useful to treat it separately, Second epistemic principle, that what we seem to, that is what we apparently remember having experienced, we probably did experience, barring counter-evidence. And I call this the principle of memory. And it's a further epistemic principle, that what people seem to, that is apparently, are telling us that they experienced, they probably did experience, again, barring counter-evidence. And I'll call this the principle of testimony. Beliefs acquired by apparent experience, memory and testimony are probably true in the absence of counter-evidence. 
Science relies on the applicability of these principles to determine what constitutes evidence. A scientist takes his apparent observations, experiences and calculations as probably correct, at least when he's looked carefully and checked. Almost all scientific knowledge relies on apparent memory, for example of the results of experiments or calculations only written up on the following day, and for all science we rely most of the time on the apparent testimony, written and spoken, of observers to have had certain experiences, normally in the form of observations, and of theoreticians to have done certain calculations. And the wider public relies entirely on the apparent testimony of scientists, both with respect to their calculations and to their experiences. Beliefs acquired by apparent experience, memory and testimony are, however, open to counter-evidence or defeaters. There are two kinds of defeaters, undermining defeaters and overriding defeaters. If we have inferred, consciously or subconsciously, the occurrence of some event Y from present evidence X, then an undermining defeater to Y is evidence making it probable that X did not occur or is not good evidence for Y, whereas an overriding defeater is new evidence that Y did not happen. If, for example, I apparently experience hearing my telephone ring and then someone points out to me that the noise from which I subconsciously inferred that the telephone was ringing is in fact coming from the television set where someone is depicted as hearing a telephone ring. That constitutes an undermining defeater for my apparent experience. It doesn't show that my telephone was not ringing, but it does show that the noise was not evidence that it was, because the noise had a different cause. Again, if I'd come to believe that Y happened because some person apparently testified that he saw Y, evidence that the person was somewhere else at the relevant time and so could not have seen Y undermines his evidence and I have no longer any reason to believe that Y happened. By contrast, the apparent testimony of two independent witnesses that they were at the place of the alleged occurrence of Y and that they saw that Y did not happen overrides the evidence of the original witness. So, two kinds of defeaters, probably very familiar to all of you, undermining and overriding. But the evidence constituting the defeater must itself be provided by apparent experience, memory or testimony. This evidence need not be direct evidence of, for example, the non-occurrence of the event or of the evidence for it, for example, in the form of apparent testimony that the testifier was not present at the site of the alleged event. The evidence might be indirect evidence in the sense that it might be evidence supporting a theory which has the consequence that the evidence the, the, the event at stake or the evidence for it apparently experienced, remembered or testified to, couldn't have occurred. For example, evidence supporting a theory that the testifier was blind and so couldn't have seen what he testified to having seen. Now on your handout, that's got to the end of paragraph two, I think, on the, on the first page. Further, I claim, in having beliefs resulting from experience of physical events, such as the apparent observation of a desk, we assume that the event of the presence of the desk, the event experienced of the event of the presence of the desk, caused the belief with its accompanying sensations, caused, that is, in being a necessary part of the total cause. I'll repeat that. In having beliefs resulting from experience of physical events, such as the apparent experience of a desk, we assume that the event, the desk being present, is what caused my belief with its accompanying sensations. Cause, that is, in being a necessary part of the total cause. In perception, we seem to be in contact with the event apparently observed. That event seems to force itself upon us, the presence of the desk seems to force itself upon me, and I have no option but to believe that it is there. That, we assume, is because there is a causal chain from the desk to the belief. Only causes exert force. Hence the generally accepted causal theory of perception. 
Maybe not any perceptual belief caused by the object apparently observed constitutes an observation of it. Maybe the causal root must not be deviant. But that does not affect my main point that a causal root is necessary for perception. It is natural to suppose that the same goes for our beliefs about our currently conscious events, that in believing that we're having certain sensations, we assume that the belief is forced upon us by those events, and in believing that our calculations are correct, we assume that that belief is forced upon us by the calculations. The marks on the paper are or in our minds symbolizing the calculations cause us to have the belief that the calculations are correct. So with respect to beliefs resulting from experience, evidence that such a belief was not caused by a causal chain from the event believed constitutes an undermining defeater for it, as in my example of the telephone ring. A similar assumption of the existence of causal chains, although longer ones than for experience and ones involving different kinds of event, undergirds our beliefs in the deliverances of apparent memory and testimony. I trust my apparent memory of an event because I assume that the apparent memory was caused by a past apparent experience of the event recalled and that the experience was caused by the event itself. Thus, in trusting my apparent memory that I was in London on Saturday, I assume that it was caused by my apparent experience on Saturday of being in London, itself caused by being in London, hence the generally accepted causal theory of memory. Again, of course, the apparent memory must correspond to the previous experience, and maybe the causal route must not be deviant, but my point is simply that a causal route is necessary for memory. Any evidence that the apparent memory was planted in me by a hypnotist or a brain surgeon constitutes an undermining defeater for that apparent memory belief. Similarly, in believing someone's apparent testimony to be experienced, seeing or to have experienced some event, I assume that they say what they do because they are apparently experiencing or apparently remember having experienced that event and have the intention of telling me the truth about it. That is, their apparent experience or memory and their intention together causes them to say what they do, causes in the sense of being a necessary part of the total cause. In, that, in the case of a past event, I believe that their apparent memory was caused by an apparent past experience of the event, the latter being caused by the event itself. So, if I get evidence that the words coming out of some person's mouth were not caused by any intention of his, for example, they, might, they were caused by a neurophysiologist stimulating that person's neurons to produce uh, the sounds, or simply as in fluid aphasia, where a neural malfunction causes a stream of words to come out of a subject's mouth, that evidence constitutes an undermining defeater the belief in the truth of what that person seemed to be saying. Just to repeat, uh, in, in, for the last one, with regard to testimony, as a principle of testimony, you should believe what people tell you, other things being equal. Um, uh, but uh, you assume in <laughs> trusting testimony uh, that the testimony, what's coming out of the, the subject's mouth, is in fact caused by the subject intending that it shall come out of their mouth and, the, and uh, their belief that it's true and, and that intention and belief, uh, um, uh, their belief that it's true must itself be, <laughs> you believe, caused by uh, a past experience of the event itself. So if you find that one or other of these conditions are not satisfied, then uh, you have no justification for believing the apparent testimony. Right. Um, the intention does, of course, have to be of a particular kind, an intention to tell the truth. And the evidence that the person was intending to deceive me would also undermine his testimony. But again, my point is simply that evidence that there is no causation at all by the apparent testifier's intention or belief undermines his apparent testimony. In all of these cases, the counter-evidence in the form of an undermining defeater 
must itself come directly or indirectly from apparent experience, memory or testimony. So, in summary, I am making what I call my epistemic assumption, which is at the bottom of page one of the handout. The epistemic assumption is that, one, a justified belief in a scientific theory, which is not itself a consequence of any higher level theory in which the believer has a justified belief, requires a justified belief that the theory makes true predictions. Two, a justified belief that the theory makes true predictions, unless this is a consequence of some other theory in which the believer has a justified belief, a justified belief that the theory makes true predictions is provided by, and only by, the evidence of apparent experience, memory and testimony that the theory predicts certain events and that these events occurred. And three, such justification is undermined by evidence that any apparent experience was not caused by the event apparently experienced, any apparent memory was not caused by an apparent experience of the event apparently remembered, and any apparent testimony was not caused by the testifier's intention to report his apparent experience or memory. I hope that the few examples by which I have illustrated its application show the centrality of EA our epistemic assumption, in our noetic framework. Lying behind EA is what I call a fundamental criterion. This is that justified belief that some event occurred requires the assumption that that event is privilegedly accessible to, or causes effects privilegedly accessible to, the believer, unless it's justifiably believed to be a consequence of some wider theory which predicts events justifiably believed to occur on grounds independent of that theory. Then, justified belief that the theory makes true predictions requires, unless justified by a higher level theory, the assumption that both the scientist's awareness of the calculations that the theory predicts certain events and the events predicted are accessible or cause effects accessible to the believer. FC is, I suggest, a criterion central to our judgments about the credibility of a scientific theory. So I've given you some definitions of the terms, and then I've presented an epistemological thesis um, about the uh, requirements, or one requirement, one crucial requirement for uh, the justification of a scientific theory, that it shall make predictions and that we shall justifiably believe uh, that it makes predictions and this requires certain assumptions about uh, our sources of this uh, belief that it justifiably makes predictions and in all cases there is a causal assumption. Right, now back again to uh, the topic. Um, there could be two kinds of scientific evidence for epiphenomenalism. The first, which I shall call alpha-type evidence, is evidence about when, relative to brain events, various conscious events occurred. For epiphenomenalism claims that the occurrence of any conscious event makes no difference to the pattern of later brain events. So it predicts that whether or not some type of conscious event occurs during the first part of some sequence of brain events will make no difference to whether or not the sequence is completed and so cause public behaviour. It would seem that if this prediction were tested for a large random sample of different kinds of sequences of brain events and different types of conscious events and found to be correct, this would be strong evidence for epiphenomenalism. That is to say, if you had evidence that there was for innumerable different kinds of sequence of brain events, one brain event causing another, causing a third, B for brain events, and that these events occurred whether or not someone had formed an intention to produce the bodily movement caused by this, um, but this didn't make any difference to them. If you had lots of evidence of that kind, it might seem that you would have good evidence for epiphenomenalism. Uh, to get that sort of evidence, to test such predictions, a scientist would have to learn about the times of occurrence of various conscious events. He'd have to know when the intention occurred. Um, 
The paradigm way to learn about this is from apparent experience, memory and testimony about when the conscious events occurred. Although a scientist could learn about the times of occurrence of conscious events of some narrow kind from some wider theory, that theory would be a theory about when conscious events of some wider kind occurred and could itself be justifiably believed only on evidence of the same kind. Yet if apparent testimony is to constitute evidence that conscious events occurred, the scientist must, by my principle EA, assume that the testifying subjects are caused to say what they do by a belief that the conscious events occurred and an intention to tell the truth about their belief, a causal route which must go through a brain event. But if epiphenomenalism were true, no conscious events will cause any brain events to cause the subjects to say what they do. So, you've got to have evidence of this. How are you going to get evidence of this? Well, you're going to get evidence of this from parent experience, memory and testimony, and this will mean that you, you'll learn about it by its effects in the world, but that will mean that this does make a difference to some events in the world. So, the situation is, uh, there's uh, the, uh, uh, this way of trying to establish uh, epiphenomenalism looks self-defeating. No theory could be justifiably believed on the basis of evidence about the occurrence of events, about the occurrence of which we could ha have evidence only if we assume the theory to be false. Hence, epiphenomenalism couldn't be justifiably believed on the basis of apparent testimony of the subjects to their events. A scientist might remember his own conscious events. By EA, someone is justified in trusting his apparent memories on the assumption that they are caused by his past experiences. But we know that all true memories, except perhaps ones of events within the previous few minutes, are caused immediately by brain events. And so, in order to be justified in believing that his memories are caused more ultimately by his past experiences, he must believe that those experiences cause brain events, and so he must assume that epiphenomenalism as a whole is false he gets his, uh, um, his belief about his past intention by uh, some present belief that it occurred on the basis of memory of it, then uh, the only way this is going to happen, our scientific knowledge suggests, is that this is going to cause a brain tra trace which in turn will cause the present memory. But that again involves intentions making a difference to brain events. A scientist might, yes, uh, sorry, hence, ap hence apparent memories of past experiences cannot provide a justified belief that epiphenomenalism makes true predictions any more than can apparent testimony of others. Perhaps a scientist might have a justified belief about which conscious event he was currently experiencing um, without assuming that the conscious events caused that belief. I have suggested we, we do normally we might be justified in supposing that our beliefs about our conscious events are caused by them, but some philosophers have argued that they're not, and it doesn't matter very much to my position which, uh, whether or not that's true. Uh, uh, so, because even if someone might know on the basis of their own present experience what they are experiencing without there being any causation of any mental event, by anything else, then uh, that would hardly be enough evidence for a scientist to know uh, either what his theory predict or um, uh, what, uh, whether the predicted events had occurred. So I conclude that no one could have a justified belief in epiphenomenalism on the basis of what I've called type alpha evidence for it. Type alpha evidence being evidence of uh, the occurrence of certain mental events during the, some sequence of brain events. I now apply this result uh, to the research program initiated by Benjamin Libet, which seeks to provide evidence of type alpha, showing, that is to say, providing a justified belief, that a sample of brain events of one kind, which cause intentional actions, are not caused by intentions. 
In the original and most influential Libet exper experiments, participants were instructed to move their hand at a moment of their choice within a period, say 20 seconds. They are told, choose freely at some time in the next 20 seconds to move your hand. They watch a very fast clock and report subsequently the moment at which they first had the intention, or whatever, I'll come to that in a moment, the moment at which they had first had the intention to move the hand. They reported the intention occurred on average 200 milliseconds before the onset of muscle activity initiating a hand movement. Let's get this on the board. Um, they are asked to move their hand at some time in the next 20 seconds uh, and to report subsequently when they formed the intention to do so. And M for mental event, and here is the intention. And uh, the general result of all this is that uh, scientists found that there was an interval of roughly 500 milliseconds here. I'll come to what this is in a minute. And an interval of about 200 milliseconds here. That uh, the, the brain event which caused the bodily movement occurred about 200 milliseconds after the time which the subject said they formed the intention. But then it was also found that some 500 milliseconds before that, uh, there was a build-up of uh, uh, potential on the experiment on the subject's skull, to which various pieces of electrical apparatus had been applied. And presumably this indicated some sort of brain event going on, and we'll call that B1. So there was an evidence that when the subject moved their hand, uh, there was a particular kind of event happening in the brain, 500 milliseconds before that, uh, which was followed by the intention, which was followed by that. Okay. Now, many neuroscientists, believe it or not, proceed from that to reach the extraordinary conclusion that the intention doesn't cause the movement. Uh, thus, I'll quote one in a recent collection of articles on this. Uh, uh, three neuros, an article by three neuroscientists, conclude that, quote, Libet's data contradict the naive view of free will that conscious intention causes action. Clearly, conscious intention cannot cause an action if a neural event that proceeds and correlates with the action comes before the conscious intention. So they were saying, that can't cause that because there's a correlation between that and that. But that, of course, is a totally unjustified conclusion since it's equally compatible with all the data and the most natural explanation of them to suppose that B1 causes M2, which in turn causes B3. Causation is transitive. If I flip the light switch and thereby cause the light bulb to light up, that doesn't rule out the possibility that my flipping the switch caused an electric current to pass to the bulb and that the current caused the bulb to light up. Despite this obvious point, many neuroscientists prefer one of two rival explanations of the data over the natural explanation, and the favoured one of the two rival explanations is that the earlier brain event causes both the intention by one route and the sequence of brain events leading to the bodily movement by another route. No reason given for preferring that over what seems to be the natural one, but there it is. Now, if it were shown, if it were shown, uh, so this kind of experiment, and of the original Libet experiments have been made, as I'm sure many of you know, a lot more sophisticated in various ways, and, we, and the scientists have much better access to what's going on in the brain than they did at the time of the original experiments by means of different techniques of uh, invasion of the brain. Um, that doesn't make any difference to the general, as it were, form of such experimental results. That you find build-up of potential before certain things happen. But this, as I've suggested, shows absolutely nothing about the causal route. Uh, to show something about the causal route, you need an experiment of this type. 
But then, even if it were shown that B1 causes a sequence of brain events which are necessary for the bodily movement, when that constitutes an intentional action, that wouldn't show that the intention was not a necessary part of the cause. To show that, you would need to show that B1 causes the same sequence of brain events with or without subjects having the requisite intention, and so with or without the bodily movement constituting an intentional action. As far as I know, no one has attempted to show this. If it were shown, we would have evidence against the natural interpretation of the Libet experiments. We would have evidence, it might seem, that against the interpretation that this causes this and this causes that by different routes. Um, experimenters seeking to establish a scientific theory, such as those performing Libet-type experiments, assume they have access to the conscious lives of many different subjects, and so type alpha evidence about them, in order to test the prediction discussed in the... which I just discussed, this prediction, that that sequence would just... Uh, could occur with or without the intention. In order to test the prediction that the same sequence of brain events would occur in the absence of the intention, without which the experimental results do not show, the thought produced so far, do not show that the intention does not cause the movement. And again, now I apply my general points I made earlier to this particular uh, possible experiment that might be done. The only way for experimenters to acquire this information, to acquire the information about when this occurred and show to do that experiment, the only way for experimenters to acquire this information about the conscious events of subjects is from what those subjects tell them, or from a higher level theory which has that consequence. So experimenters assume that the subjects' beliefs about their conscious events are correlated with their testimony in the sense that the testimony is a true report of their beliefs. The normal reason for this is provided by EA, subject's intention to tell the truth about their beliefs, plus their beliefs cause the testimony. If we assume that the correlation holds for this reason, we would already be assuming the falsity of epiphenomenalism in one respect, in order to test the crucial prediction necessary to provide justification of either of the interpretations of the Libet experiments which claim that intentions do not cause the hand movements. We can only justifiably believe that intentions do not cause the hand movements if we justifiably believe that they do cause the apparent testimony about them. However, uh, this is not to rule out the possibility that in the particular circumstances of Libet-type experiments, apparent testimony is not caused by the intention to produce it. But that could only be the case if in general apparent testimony was reliable, and so normally apparent testimony was caused by uh, the intention to produce it. So yes, uh, certain experiments might show that in certain restricted kind of circumstances, uh, our testimony is not caused by the intention. Uh, that our hand movements or whatever are not caused by the intention that they should. But this could only be the case that it's proved for that, for a particular narrow kind of experiment on the assumption that it normally doesn't hold. That is to say, its, it's nature is such that it can't be extrapolated more widely. So, I conclude that the Libet-type experiments have not so far shown that in, even in their experimental circumstances, intentions do not cause bodily movements. And even if the crucial predictions necessary to show this were correct, that would only show that epiphenomenalism held in these particular circumstances on the assumption that in general it was false. And more generally, no alpha-type evidence could possibly have any tendencies whatever to show that epiphenomenalism generally is false. And therefore, it couldn't have any tendency to show that uh, uh, physical determinism is true. It might, however, seem that someone could have a justified belief in physical determinism, not because of type alpha evidence for epiphenomenalism, 
but because of a justified belief in some physical theory that every physical event has another physical event as its immediate, necessary and sufficient causal condition. In that case, of course, no brain event could have a conscious event as its necessary causal condition, because if all the necessary causal conditions are at this level, then uh, whether or not intentions occur uh, would be irrelevant. So the suggestion might be, uh, OK, let's, let's see if we can construct a physical deterministic theory by finding for all sorts of patterns of physical events, uh, including, of course, brain events, that for any such event there is always a necessary and sufficient physical event, which is it's the cause of that one immediately preceding it. In that case, uh, if we could show that, it might seem that uh, that would show merely that physical determinism was true, but also uh, that, uh, it, that this was quite irrelevant to what was going on here. So, uh, in order to do this sort of experiment, and of course this is just putting in a very formal way uh, the kind of thing that many physicists uh, would like to show and have tried to show, um, putting in a very formal way what's involved in this. Now, in order to do this, we have to know what these events are. Uh, we have to know of all sorts of events, when physical events, when and where they occur, and we have to know that our de uh, deterministic theory predicted those events. Okay, so uh, can we do that without making the assumption that uh, our conscious states make any difference to what's happening in the physical world? It might seem that we could. It might seem that with respect to um, whether or not certain physical events occurred, we wouldn't need to make the assumption that our conscious events uh, uh, occur and uh, affect what's going on in the world. A scientist, all that a scientist requires is evidence provided by apparent memory of past observations and apparent testimony by others to having observed various physical events in the past. But it rather looks, to start with, as if a justified belief in the deliverances of apparent memory of past experiences and apparent testimony to them is, by EA, undermined by evidence that they are not caused by experiences of those events. So it might seem, given A, there couldn't even be justified belief in a physical theory which entailed epiphenomenalism. If in order to get the evidence I'm talking about, you have to depend on someone's testimony, in the sense that of testimony I've described, or on someone's memory, then this makes, means making the assumption that the testimony is causing what comes out of their mouths, and so there are some, some brain events for which uh, this sort of thing is not a necessary and sufficient condition. So, however, um, I distinguish between EA, you may remember, and a fundamental criterion, which I call FC, which lies behind it. And uh, you, if you just go to FC, the, the criterion behind it, uh, it turns out that you can uh, get evidence in a stretched slightly stretched sense of memory and in a very stretched sense of testimony about the occurrence of uh, physical events without depending on the assumption that mental events cause physical events. Okay, how is that the case? Well, um, you can understand memory simply as memory of the occurrence of events and not <laughs> only of events which are experiences of the occurrence of events. For example, a subject could said, be said to remember past physical events in virtue of those events causing traces in his brain, which at a later time cause the apparent memory of those events without any mental to physical causation being involved. That is, I've understood memory so far as a matter of remembering a past experience and that will involve the past experience causing brain traces, which in turn uh, cause uh, my present memory. But we could understand memory in a slightly wider sense as 
the occurrence as memory not of my past experiences but of the physical events uh, which in the past I in fact observed. And so uh, if I'm looking at your brain, it could be the case that uh, this brain event causes an uh, event in my brain, let's call, <laughs> you know what we call that, uh, event in my brain, R2, which causes my later memory, Rm3, uh, without there being any downward causation from the mental to the physical. Um, whereas if we interpret memory in the natural sense, then there is that downward causation and therefore it's self-defeating. And we could also understand testimony in a very much wider sense. Uh, if testimony is just the coming out of <laughs> words coming out of someone's mouth, then um, one, one could learn about uh, someone's brain, someone, <laughs> what's going on in someone else's brain or any other physical event by supposing that some other observer observed this and it made a difference to his brain, and the difference to his brain, in turn, led to him producing words. And once again, there's no downward causation. So, uh, it seems that in a rather stretched sense of memory and testimony, you could learn about which physical events occur without making the assumption that uh, uh, epiphenomenalism is false, without making the assumption that there is a downward causation from the mental to the physical. However, <coughs> although you could learn about the occurrence of uh, the physical events uh, in this way, and therefore be on your way to constructing a deterministic theory, you also have to know that the theory in fact predicted the occurrence of those events. And that's where the problem would again arise. Because how am I to know that some deterministic theory that a scientist has produced predicts certain events? Well, the scientist, in my case, would have to tell me that it does. And his information uh, is no good. What I've got to believe is not merely that certain brain, certain physical events have caused the words to come out of his mouth, I've got to believe that he's seen, he's <laughs> seen that certain calculations have certain consequences, and that means to say he's got to give me testimony to what is going on in his mind. And he can only do that if the mental has a downward effect. And the same point applies to memory. That is to say, if I have if I'm a scientist and I've calculated uh, that a certain theory makes certain predictions, um, I can't all keep all this in my mind at one moment. I depend on my memory of past calculations. Um, and uh, what I have to remember is not what I saw, the physical events, but that I saw that certain theory had certain consequences. That's to say I've got to be able to remember my past experiences in this case. So, uh, if we, uh, uh, although if we go to what I called FC, and this will allow us to have a wider understanding of memory and a wider understanding of testimony, all that FC is insisting on is that there shall be a causal route from whatever uh, we, cl we claim to have knowledge of, to our knowledge. Um, uh, and that will allow us to uh, get to rely on the words that come out of somebody's mouth uh, for evidence that uh, certain physical events occurred, or it will allow us to rely on our memory in an extended sense that certain physical events occurred. What it won't allow us to do is to have knowledge that our past, that we've made certain calculations in the past and they'd given certain consequences, or that someone else had made certain calculations in the past and they'd had certain consequences. So, uh, uh, you can't 
even beta-type evidence. That's just evidence about what you know, physical events occur. And um, uh, you can't... And uh, the suggestion that that might be evidence for a deterministic theory, you couldn't be in a position to uh, know that both that the events had occurred and that they were the successful predictions of a, uh, of a deterministic theory without relying on uh, your past experiences or somebody else's past experiences, making a difference to your present memory or the testimony that comes out of your mouth. So, again, it's going to be self-defeating to establish a deterministic theory because you can only do it on the assumption that uh, your memories rely on past experiences through the brain and the testimony of others uh, makes it, uh, it depends on their past experiences of seeing that self-certain calculations work. And so, once again, you could only, even by this route, establish a deterministic theory if you made the assumption that there are exceptions to it, and therefore it would be self-defeating. So, my general conclusion is um, any attempt to justify physical determinism is going to be self-defeating um, because <coughs> of the uh, causal conditions on the um, on experience, on justified belief about experience, memory, and testimony, which are required if we are to uh, establish the scientific theory. So, whatever route you use, whether the one I've discussed at length, that is to say, Libet-type experiments, or what I've discussed just in formal outline, uh, sort of the suggestion it can be done by physics alone, uh, neither will work. Any attempt to prove physical determinism is in the end going to be self-defeating, and I leave you with that thought.